Good morning, good morning. Well, all good things must come to an end. But I am really grateful that I had this opportunity to spend time with you all to to see the work that the Lord is doing here in Lexington. I've been really encouraged uh, by the conversations, uh, by uh, your ministry, by your community. And I am praying that the Lord, through his word, would leave a deposit in your lives and in this community that will spur you on to continue the good work that you have been doing and to press more deeply into the work that is ahead. So for our final uh, For our final time this morning, I want to uh, encourage you to join me in the book of Jonah, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Jonah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we sit under your word now, as we open our ears to listen to what you have to say, that we would expect to be different people on the other side of receiving your truth. We pray that you would advance your kingdom in Lexington and that it would begin with the advance of your kingdom in our own hearts. We pray that you would would set up shop 
on the throne of our hearts and that you would rule our emotions, that you would rule our minds, that you would rule our thinking and our planning and our plotting for our lives, that you would rule over our expectations for our lives, that you would rule over our own dreams for our lives. We pray that you would establish your kingdom within us and that we would take that rule and reign and extend it in this place. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we left the sailors yesterday, they were peering over the side of the ship. They had just thrown the prophet Jonah overboard at his request, and now everything was peaceful for them. And they were awestruck at the power that Jonah's God demonstrated in stilling the storm. Everything was peace for the sailors now. But for Jonah, disaster and calamity were falling upon him. And in chapter 2, what we have are the lonely cries of a dying man as he sinks to the bottom of the sea. In chapter 2, we get this sort of collection of psalms that Jonah latches onto and he is sort of patching them together to create his own psalm. His psalm of lament as his life is withering from him. And chapter 2 is written for us to give us a picture of Jonah that is a picture of his life ebbing away. It's as if Jonah is on death's door. He is at the very gate of death. His life is almost at an end. And it's all his fault. It's all his fault. But even, even Jonah, with all his sin and all his selfishness, even Jonah has enough wits about him to lift up a prayer to the Lord in the midst of his distress. He's knocking on death's door, and at the last moment, he lifts up a prayer to the Lord. And all of a sudden, he feels his context change. The water was whipping around him. Now, all of a sudden, he's engulfed in this slimy context. But he can breathe. He's not dreaming. He doesn't seem to be in the grave. To his shock, he is alive. And the text tells us he's alive because the Lord appointed a great fish to come and swallow him up. And I'm not going to get into all the details there because I don't want that fish to swallow up my sermon time. So, this is what you need to know about this fish. This fish is God's appointed means of showing us something very specific. That Jonah experiences A sort of death and resurrection. God appoints a resurrection fish to save save him from from death. And this is is what Jonah says after, after he is swallowed by the fish, after he's rescued. At the key turnaround in the text, this is what Jonah's psalm says. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. You see, the Lord gives Jonah a personal experience of mercy before he gives him a personal ministry of mercy. 
Jonah becomes proof positive of the fact that there is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. God does this work in the life of Jonah so that he is set up to to announce that work as a possibility for the lives of the people of Nineveh. And as Israel looks at Jonah and they see their death and resurrection in Jonah, now the church can look at the true and greater prophet and see our death and resurrection in him. Now we can say, yet you brought up my life from the pit, oh God. Now you and I have that as our personal testimony. And when that is your personal testimony, you know that he can bring your neighbor's life up from the pit. If he's raising people up from the pit like you, he's raising up any kind of people. You have hope for any person in any circumstances. No one gets counted out. No one's too far gone. No one is so lost. No one is so corrupt. No one is so blind that they cannot be rescued by the God of the resurrection. And you are proof of that. So Jonah is spit up on the shore by the, by the resurrection fish. And God's word comes to Jonah a second time. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what's his response? Okay. You know, getting swallowed by a resurrection fish has a way of softening you up to listen to the word of the Lord. I hear. Okay. So Jonah begins the trek to Nineveh. Now I want you to just imagine him. Jonah's soggy. (laughs) He's walking like this. He got swallowed by a fish and he comes walking and finally after, after lots of trek, he finally gets into Nineveh. And I want you to picture the things that he's seeing. What he's seeing is a bunch of stuff that's unfamiliar to him. He's hearing a language that's, that's spoken that, that, you know, he's hearing different languages. This is, a, this is one of the biggest cities in the ancient Near East. All different kinds of people in this city. It's, it's got all different kinds of people. He's smelling smells he's not used to smelling. And he's seeing people that are just different from him. And all the while, his skin is crawling. His skin is crawling. And finally, he gets to the center of the city and he delivers his message. And and the text just gives us a summary of his sermon to Nineveh. He gets in the center of Nineveh and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated overthrown, there's a play on words happening here. Because it can also be translated as turn around or transform. In other words, Jonah speaks better than he knows. Forty days and Nineveh will be turned around, transformed. He preaches his message and he thinks that violence is possible against him. But to his surprise and dismay, the people of Nineveh, they flock and they say, tell us more. Which God have we offended? What have we done? And to his shock, they begin to turn around. They are responsive to his message. This is an amazing thing. We see that the people of Nineveh hear the message and widespread corporate repentance breaks out. And the Lord God reveals himself to be a God of enemy love. He reveals himself to be a God of enemy love. 
And you know what the good news of this text is? Jonah goes in and he says 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. But Jesus says in three days, I'm going to turn around this whole world. And you are on my list who place your faith in me. We, we see that when, when Jonah goes and preaches the message, the people turn around. And now in Jesus Christ, we see a more transformative message. The gospel. But here's the deal. Jonah doesn't want to stick around to see the rest of this thing unfold. He's like, this can't be real. This can't be true. And so what he does is he goes outside. He leaves the city of Nineveh. And he goes out with his bucket of popcorn because he thinks he's about to see another Sodom and Gomorrah happen. He thinks he's going to see fireworks, that the Lord is going to rain down burning sulfur and fire on these people because that's, this isn't going to be real. This can't be real. I'm waiting to see God judge these people that I despise so much. And so he goes out day one, eating his popcorn, no fire and brimstone. All right. Just wait, shake it out. Just give it some time. The Lord's going to get them. Day two. He's looking on the horizon. He doesn't see any smoke, no fire, no flames. Day three. He's waiting. When is God going to light them up? And that day doesn't come for Jonah. And as we sit with this text this morning, our final passage The final chapter of this story of Jonah, it's given to us to to enlarge our hearts so that we will engage God's mission. And those are the two points through which we're going to approach this text. We're going to look at enlarging our hearts and engaging God's mission. Look at the first point, enlarging our hearts. As chapter 3 closes and chapter 4 begins, we move from one surprising response to the next. Surprisingly, Nineveh responds to the message of Jonah with repentance. And surprisingly, Jonah responds to the repentance of Nineveh with resentment. That's surprising. The preacher is upset that the people actually listen to what he said. That's a new one. He preaches and he's mad that they're repenting. Nineveh is experiencing renewal. If you read through chapter 3, it is from the top down. From the the king who sits on the throne all the way down to the poor. There is a, a renewal that happens in their society. They start overturning unjust systems. They start they start to make changes so that the poor and the vulnerable are not taken advantage of so that the powerful no longer abuse those who don't have power. There's all kind of change that's happening in Nineveh. The arrogant, violent city is now wearing sackcloth and ashes, mourning their sin and its consequences, and the preacher is angry. The preacher's angry. And why was he angry? Look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why was he angry? Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah is angry 
Because he didn't want Nineveh to experience the steadfast love of the Lord. He didn't want them to benefit from the covenant love of God. He was so angry that he no, he no longer wanted to live in a world where Ninevites could be rescued, could be redeemed. He wanted grace for himself and karma for them. Now, if you pay attention to TV shows or any contemporary culture, you will hear, hear people throwing around the phrase, isn't karma something? But they say it in a less holy way, you know what I'm saying? Karma is a notion that comes from Hinduism that the deeds of your past life are going to come back on you. That the, the, the evil that you did back there, it's going to find you. And if you're good back there, well, then the good will find you. Basically, you get what you deserve. You get out what you put in. That's karma. And it's become popular these days when something bad happens to someone who's done bad. They say, ah, karma. You see, Jonah wanted grace for himself and karma for those people. I want you to compare chapters 2 and 4. When Jonah's in distress, when Jonah's sinking, when Jonah is knocking on death's door, the soundtrack playing in his head is amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Jonah was that same. A wretch like me. But when Nineveh was sinking, when Nineveh was in distress, when Nineveh was knocking on death's door, the soundtrack playing in his head was, hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. He, he wanted them to get what they deserve. He wanted grace for himself and karma for them. Now here's the irony. In verse 2, he quotes Exodus 34 with contempt. I knew you were a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know what the irony is? That passage immediately followed the idolatry of Israel in the golden calf incident. He, he wanted grace for Israel. He wanted grace for himself and his people. And he wanted karma for Nineveh. In other words, he wanted Israel, his people, to have the market cornered on grace because he believed that Nineveh had the market cornered on sin. Here's the deal. Jonah saw a, a categorical difference between their sin and his own misdeeds. In other words, Jonah really reveals here that he thought that he had something about himself to commend himself to God. Something that the Ninevites did not have. But whenever you take this mentality, you are emptying grace of its very core. You're emptying grace of its very significance. If you look at your neighbors with contempt for their sin, then you're really revealing that you think there's something about you that makes you special and more lovable. Look at the text. Jonah was good at talking about grace, but his core attitudes and thoughts betrayed grace. 
He knew the language of grace, but he did not know the life of grace. He had grace in his mouth and karma in his heart. Jonah should have known that if God's compassion was coming to people like him, then God's compassion was going out to the people of the world. Jonah should have known above all people that though his sin was serious, God's grace was more serious. Verse 4, look at the Lord's response to the prophet though. He's leading him with a gentle yet penetrating question. You know, here's the interesting thing. If I was God in this situation, I'd say, hey Jonah, come closer. No, no, real close. What is wrong with you? You know, like, we ought to be glad that God is not like God. I always tell my congregation, I say the Bible should only be four chapters. After Genesis 3, Genesis 4 should have said, then God blew everybody up and lived happily ever after the end. But the fact that we have Genesis through Revelation shows us the nature of the God we serve. That he is a God who is rich in mercy. That he's a God who is full of grace. That he is a God who loves to redeem and retrieve the outcast and the outsider. He loves to bring the far off back home. That's the good news of the gospel. And he's not going to quit until he makes his whole world brand new. That is good news. God should have jacked Jonah up here. But he doesn't. He presses in with a penetrating question. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, of all the people now, do you do well to be angry? Do you think you have the high moral ground relative to the Ninevites? You're just like them. And of all the people on the planet who should love and rejoice in compassion, it's you, Jonah. Because I brought up your life from the pit and you were the runaway prophet. You were the rebellious prophet that I pulled up from the very bottom of the ocean through the resurrection fish and gave you a second chance. And here's the beauty of the good news. God doesn't just give you a second chance. He gives you a third and a fourth and a fifth and a hundred and twenty-fifth and a five hundredth chance. Because God isn't just about second chances. He doesn't just give you a second chance because you'd screw that one up too. He gives you the second Adam. That's the good news. There should be no more mercy-loving person on the face of the earth than you, Jonah. There should be no one more captivated by compassion than you, Jonah. But why is this included in the narrative? The narrator wants to expose our hearts so that he can enlarge our hearts because we too have the Jonah syndrome. Grace for me karma for you. We, we contrive a thousand reasons why God should show no grace to those people, whether that's your neighbors or your, or your co-workers or, or, or whatever group of people out there that you, you're not particularly keen on. And yet he should show grace to us. Here, here are some of the ways that it sounds. Okay. Listen closely to this. Have you ever heard this sentiment in your own heart or in maybe a, a conversation with a friend? They need to learn a lesson, and I don't want to encourage irresponsible behavior. They need to learn that actions have consequences. We try to dress it up, but at the end of the day, the logic is grace for me, karma for you. And here's the deal. It shows up in the most ordinary 
of circumstances, this, this way of thinking, this logic. Think about it. My lateness versus your lateness. If I'm late to the meeting, oh, I'm so, you know, things happened at the house, the kids, and, you know, I, you know, grace for me. But let someone else be late on you for a meeting. You're sitting there. They don't, they don't value my time. They don't love the Lord. They can't even show up on time. Being respond- It's integrity. That's what it is. They lack integrity. <laughs> grace for me. Karma for you. Let's think about when I need to pull into the lane. Uh, thanks, 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 thanks. Let someone else pull into the lane on you. Oh, God, what is wrong with you? How could you? These, these, these fools out here driving. See, it's people like this. That's why the world is broken. That's it. It's sin. It's sin. That's what people do. It's, a, it's grace for me and karma for you. There, it shows up in all these different kinds of ways. My excuses versus your excuses. When I don't speak up about matters close to your heart, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation. But when you don't speak up about matters that are close to my heart, I call down fire on you. Grace for me, karma for you. We tend to judge ourselves and and our kind on our good intentions. But we judge those people on on their bad behaviors. We assume the best about ourselves and our people while we assume the worst about those people. We apply 101 level scrutiny to our own lives and 401 level scrutiny to those people. We are most deceived when we refuse to see any possibility for our neighbors and any culpability in ourselves. We're good at talking about grace, but often our core attitudes and thoughts betray grace. We know the language of grace, but so often we reveal we don't know the life of grace. We often have grace in our mouths, but karma in our hearts. And we should be keenly aware of the fact that if there is grace for great sinners like us, and there is grace for great sinners like our neighbors, when we look at the cross, we ought to know that even though their sin is serious, God's compassion is even more serious. Of all the people on the planet who ought to have compassion, it's Christians. Because our story as individuals and our story as a community is when we were sinking down, he brought up our lives from the pit. There should be no people more captivated by grace. But we also have to take into account Jonah's ethnocentrism here. He was a nationalist who was only out for the benefit of his group. And this resulted in a spirit of antagonism toward the people outside of his group. And he wants God to share his attitude. Do you see that? But but Jonah's ethnocentrism, his nationalism, puts him at odds with God. His nationalism conditioned his faith to the degree that it was not recognizable to the Lord. You see, we all want a Mr. Potato Head kind of God. Where we can plug in the fixtures as we want. This came to me one day. I was messing around with my my youngest son, Lorenzo. And I said, he was putting the parts all over the place. He had the arm right where the nose was supposed to be. He was, and I said, why are you doing that? Like, he's like, because I want to. And I was like, see, you just helped daddy with a little sermon illustration here. 
Because we like this bland general idea of God and then we outfit him with the features that we want him to have. We make God into our own likeness. God designed us in his own likeness and we turn around and do him the favor of making him in our likeness. It's, it's, a, it's something broken about the way we think. But God isn't going to get down with Jonah's, with Jonah's nationalism. Jonah thought his nation was the best in the world. If you will, Jonah was probably singing, I'm proud to be an Israelite. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. You see, you see, he thought his nation was the best in the world. He made his culture the standard for all other cultures. Does this sound familiar? But look at how the text exposes his nationalism, and his ethnocentrism. Jonah wanted a God made in his own cultural image. Jonah wanted a God who shared his prejudice, but what he gets is a God who shatters his prejudice. Who do you want God to be? Are you receiving, are you receiving God as he is? Listen, you know, if you're a non-Christian here today, I want you to know, first of all, we are so glad you're here. There is no other place that we'd rather you be than here in this place with us this morning. Right, church? This is where we would love for you to work out your questions and wrestle through issues of faith and try to process and, 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 and get clarity on what it is you believe. But here's something I, I, I want to bring out. At my church, I often get people who come in and they ask questions about what our church believes and they want to know where we stand on things. And they say, do you guys believe in a God of judgment? Because I, I just, I, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God of judgment. I don't like to think of God. I like to think of God as a God of love. Do you guys believe in the, the, this about God? Because I like to believe. And you know what? It's interesting. If someone comes up to me and they say, hey, I'd like to get to know you. And I say, great. And they say, you know, Russ, I like to think of you as a blonde Norwegian introvert. I'm going to say, but that's not who I am. But, but I know, but I just can't think of a Russ who has black curly hair and a beard and like, you know, looks Hispanic. I, I just can't believe in a Russ like that. I'm going to say, listen, you might not be able to believe in a Russ like that, but that's the Russ you got. And if you want to know this Russ, well, then you're going to have to adjust and actually get to know me. You're going to have to get to know me on my terms. Now, here's the deal. You grant that to other human beings. And you would expect that for yourself. So how is it that we can be unwilling to grant that to God? Shouldn't it stand to reason that we need to get to know God on God's terms? If you want to understand the Christian God, then you need to take the Christian scriptures to understand God on his own terms. It's just an encouragement. It's just intellectual integrity. If you're going to process, if you're going to think about things relating to God, then what we're suggesting as Christians is that God is a personal God. And in order to get to know him, you, you have to get to know him on his own terms rather than trying to make him out to be what you want him to be. Because here's the deal. God isn't who you want him to be, but he is who you need him to be. And that's the good news. Jonah wanted God in his own image. But the God that he gets 
is going to is going to change everything for him. The God that he gets is different. This God loves him so much that he will not endorse the ugliness that is in his heart. Because you know, some commentators, some interpreters of Jonah believe that Jonah is the one who wrote this book. And this is his repentance. That Jonah is making light of his own failure. He is pointing out his own brokenness. He's showing you what he used to be like. And now he's on the other side and he's a changed man because of his encounter with the grace of God. It's not a bad idea. I'm no Old Testament scholar though. But listen, we see the exposure of our hearts. But now we need to look at engaging God's mission, which brings us to our second point. Listen, I love that even in this dark moment of Jonah's life, God keeps pressing in on him in love and grace. And at the very moment that Jonah is resenting the grace that has come to Nineveh, he's receiving an object lesson in the grace that has been given to him. God gives him an object lesson, a plant that he delights in, this grace, the shade. But then God withdraws it to remind him that he's sawing at the branch that holds him up. He's on the branch going, you're showing grace to sinners. You You see what's happening here, the inconsistency, the inconsistency in his soul. But he gets the object lesson in compassion in verses 5 through 9. And then the text ends with a haunting question from the Lord. I want you to hear this. This is a haunting question. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Should I not love that great city? If I have loved you, should not I love that community in the neighborhood. If I have loved you in this way, should I not love those people, whoever those people are for you? Should I not love? And the book ends with a question. It leaves us in tension. And the subtle, the subtle question is it's reaching out to you and it's saying, what are you going to do with this story? Who are you going to become in light of this narrative? Are you going to be the grace for me, karma for them kind of people? Who are you going to become? Finish this story. Write the last chapter by showing God's compassion to the world. This is the, this is the reason why it ends with a, with a question. It's begging for Israel to finish the story. To be a neighbor loving people on the mission of God. But you know what's going to happen, don't you? Israel's going to fail the mission. They're going to hit the eject button. They're going to say, no, I think we'll stick with the grace for me, karma for them way of life. All of Israel will fail to love their neighbors. All of Israel will reject the call to being a light to the nations. All of Israel will fail and it will end in a season of darkness and exile. And hundreds of years will go by until we get down to one true Israelite who will fulfill the call to love neighbors. 
Jesus becomes the true Israelite who is a light to the nations. Jesus becomes the true Israelite who will fulfill the final chapter of God's story. Jesus will become the true Israelite who will execute God's mission to the nations. He is the sent one who comes to rescue people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, to make friends of his enemies, to make saints of sinners, to change this world forever. That's the good news toward which this story goes. All of Israel would fall away and all of Israel would fail, but Jesus would pick up the storyline and fulfill it. But even in our final chapter of Jonah, you have to see the good news that comes by the contrast with Jonah. The the true and greater prophet, we should be glad, is not like Jonah. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And that is good news. You see, Jonah recoils at the redemption of sinners. Jesus rejoices in the redemption of sinners and he even sings over us with gladness. Jonah asked that he might die because he loathed the salvation of Nineveh. But Jesus asked that he might die because he loved the salvation of his people. Jonah was angry enough to die, but Jesus was loving enough to die. Jonah went outside the city to await its destruction, but Jesus went outside the city to absorb our destruction. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. He was taken outside the camp to bear our reproach, so let us go out to him. You see, Jesus is so much better. One greater than all of Israel has come. Jesus has come to be the most beautiful expression of neighbor love. And if you take anything away from here, from this weekend, I want you to take this. That if you identify as a neighbor who has been loved by Jesus, then it is your call. It is your responsibility. It is your privilege and your joy to follow him in loving your neighbors. To make sure you're not stepping over anyone in your way to make sure that your heart is ever growing because of the love that has been lavished on you. If Jesus has loved you in this way, there's nothing he cannot call you to do. And here's the thing. Jesus is not calling you to do anything that he has not done himself already. And the beauty of this, like Augustine said, command, grant with you command, O Lord, and command with you will. He does not call you to do something he's not prepared to empower you to do. So seek him for grace and strength. On Sunday mornings, come ready to feast on the grace of God through the preached word and through the sacraments. When you come to the table, he's strengthening you to love your neighbors. Let us join our hearts together and bear witness to this God who is holy. He's like no one else. He has done what no other God has even pretended to do. He has humbled himself to raise us up. He has stooped in order to raise us up. That's the good news. And let us be that kind of people relative to our neighbors. Let our neighbors bear testimony about our love for them. And may they come to know Jesus through our love in the church. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We pray, Father, that you would help us to finish this story. Help us to remember that our best gift to the world, the best gift that we have to offer is grace. Lord, help us to remember that the number one export of the church is supposed to be grace. We pray that you would give us the strength to play our part in offering your grace to the world, offering friendship and love to our neighbors. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful so that on that day we may be welcomed as good and faithful servants and that we may enter into the joy of our master. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.